Mark 28, uh, Mark 12, 28 to 31, the great commandment. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that, he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. And these are the words of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, hi, everybody. Good to have you all here this morning. Welcome. Uh, my name is Dave. I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Church Tucson. Redemption Church is one church in multiple congregations throughout Arizona. Um, one in Flagstaff and then us here in Tucson and then eight in the um, great expanse that is the Phoenix area. And um, so uh, if you're new, again, as has been said this morning, welcome. It's great to uh, have you here. Um, as I said, I'm the lead pastor, and I just want to give you all a, uh, a heads up. If you've never heard me preach or speak um, before, I uh, have a stutter. So I just want to make sure that you all know what that is, so you're not trying to figure it out. And um, my voice is hurting a bit from... Uh, the event that we shall not discuss last night, but um, the football game. But yeah, my my. Uh, so anyway, that's that's all that is. And um, before we get into the sermon, I wanna um, I wanna make you all aware of one thing. I wanna invite you to a volunteer night that we have um, a, uh, coming up again at uh, it's at my house, and it's this Tuesday night. And um, we've said this before that all of us innately have a couple of needs, and two of those primary needs are we need to be known, and we need to know that we're needed, right? Like, if we're a part of a community, we need to know that people know us, and we need to know that we have something to contribute, and so with that, I want to encourage you that um, you are known, and we want to know you, so as has been said, fill out a connection card, our redemption communities have just um, kicked off those meets throughout the week in different parts of Tucson, I want to encourage you to go to those. That's the primary place to, to be known and to walk alongside others in everyday life. And, and then you are needed. We just had our one-year anniversary two weeks ago, and that was fun. And even as I drove in here this morning, I just thought, like, wow, God, what's, what lies up ahead? We're entering a new season as a church. We're, you know, kind of going out of year one, kind of church planting phase, and now kind of beginning to to, to kind of grow into our own as a, as a healthy local church. And so with that, um, things can't get bottlenecked with me or like a select few. Like this needs to be a community-owned operation here. So um, there are a lot of things, a lot of ways to be involved. And this will be a great time if you're new and you're wondering, how can I serve here? What does it look like to be involved? What can I kind of commit to or help out with? Um, this would be a great thing to come to and also... Maybe you've been here since like day one and you've been serving and you've had your head down and you've been doing stuff and you are like, why am I even doing this? Or what is it? What, what's behind this? We want to help you connect the dots that heading up chairs, which thankfully we don't have to do. We have them here. But other things that we do to see that um, this is a part of the vision and mission of being gospel-centered and outward-focused and, 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 and saying that we exist for Jesus' glory and the good of 
Tucson, everything we do really comes back to that. Okay, so we want to spend some time. It'll be in hour and a half, um, beginning at 6 o'clock, so from 6 to 7.30, again, at my house. Bring your kids. We'll do something. They'll be hanging out. They'll uh, watch a movie, and, just, and we'll have some food, and we'll just you know, talk about that, okay? So go ahead and... Um, I'd uh, love to have you there for that. If you have any questions, you know where to go. The Connect Desk or the mm, website is also a good spot. So go ahead and turn with me now to Mark chapter 12. We're going to get into it pretty quickly. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, go ahead and hold your hand up high and somebody will get you one. And um, if you don't own a Bible, you do now. Okay, Keep this. It's our gift to you. We want to make sure everybody has a Bible that they can read and underline stuff and put question marks, and um, also si necesitas en español, tenemos, so um, solamente diga español, so if you prefer the Bible in Spanish, um, just say español, and um, you know, I, it wouldn't be very pastorly of me to not just address um, a couple things, one is, um, I'm encouraged this morning, uh, there was great opportunity to be discouraged, you know, last night I talked about the football game a bit, but um this morning, some people right behind me, someone knocked over their cup of coffee, and, um, and they interacted over it. It was cool. People got in. Well, last night, the almost exact same thing happened, but it didn't go down as well. Someone kicked over someone's drink behind me, and literally, the F-bomb was getting shouted, like, screamed, like a fight almost broke out over a cup getting spilled, and I'm just encouraged that there is hope. Things are, all things really are being made new, that, um... What could result in a fight could also result in a friendly hug, and let's clean this up together. So, um, also, I want to say, I know we have a couple friends from Tempe here, and this is one of the few times where we can say, guys, we're in it together. We're, we love you, and we can just mourn and hug it out together. So, that's all we'll say there. Um, so, I'm going to pray, but let me set us up for where we're headed, because there's a lot going on, right? Like, the passage we just read... Probably some of us are familiar with, right? We've heard, love God and love your neighbor. All of life, it comes down to this, love God and love other people like yourself. And we hear these things, and sometimes we get confused of like, what did God say, and what did Benjamin Franklin say, right? Like, um, cleanliness is next to godliness, or God helps those who help themselves, or some of those things which are not in the Bible, and we get those confused with things like, love God and love your neighbor, and a lot of us might be like, yeah, where does some of that stuff even come from? And, and, and the temptation can be to come to a passage like this and just have a bunch of anecdotes. Like, try harder, do better, love people, get to work. Okay, and we could have a sermon that just sends us out like that. But the good thing about coming before God's Word the way we do, where we submit ourselves to His Scripture and we do hard work of seeing God, what are you saying here enables us to really walk through a passage like this and to understand that God's character and His nature and what He's doing and what He has done necessarily leads into how we live our lives and who we are and what we do. And it sounds easy, but we can so easily separate those two things. And the tendency often in a church, some of you may have heard this, is to be like a pendulum that goes from one extreme to another. And one extreme is just just focus on what Jesus has done, focus on the cross, and just go there, just sit there, and that's true, we always start there, but sometimes we leave here being like, whoa, what do I do with that thing, like, what does that look like, 
Or the other extreme, and I would even say the more dangerous extreme, is just just do good things. Look at Jesus as your example. What would Jesus do? You know, Allen Iverson wears that bracelet. Everybody wears that bracelet. Just try harder. Look to Jesus. What would he do? And, um, and we go over there. Well, what we'll see, I've, I've once heard it said that the job of the pastor or anyone teaching through God's word is to nail that pendulum to the wall. It's to see that, that God and his nature necessarily always informs who we are and what we do. Okay, so what we're going to do today is we walk through this whole passage, Mark um, 28 through 44, is we're going to walk through four parts, and it's going to be like a boomerang, okay? We're going to start out with love God and love your neighbor. But it's like you throw out a boomerang, and it goes through some stuff, and then it spins around, and then it comes back, right? So we're going to start with love God, love your neighbor. And we're going to throw it out, and we're going to walk through this episode where we see Jesus interacting with some people and explaining that, and then it's going to bring us back to love God and love your neighbor. Okay? Amen? All right. So let me go ahead and pray that God will lead us through this time together. Lord, thank you for um, your word. Thank you for this time that we get to submit to it. Um, Lord, even honestly, thank you for the good news that, um, that who you are and, and what you're doing and Lord, that community and, and these things are um, really do shape us, even really practical things like football games and stuff like that. It's fun. And um, even when we have to walk our kids through tears of sadness and stuff, we can, we can honestly say it's not just a game, but really it's not everything. And, and there's um, just the, 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 the practical reminder that you define our lives and you inform how we relate with one another. And, and, and Lord, I, I pray that now you will bring us through this time, that we're told that um, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. And so, Lord, I pray that as we come under your word now, you will shape us, Lord, that you will, you will give us some, some deep-rooted foundational truths, but those aren't just kind of out there disconnected things, Lord, that you, you connect them to real everyday life and how we relate with you and how we relate with the people next to us. So, God, we thank you. We, we need you during this time, and we uh, uh, ask that you'll oversee it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so picking up in verse 28 of Mark chapter 12. So, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say to, um, nope, sorry, that was uh, verse 28. I'm getting ahead of myself. Verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, he asked him a question. And so, so the scribes came up to Jesus. So just to bring us up to speed on where we're at, Jesus has been interacting with what is called this Sanhedrin, right? And that is the religious authority, and they're also the people that have, like, oversight in everyday life. And it's the group of religious people that, that, that relate between the majority of Jewish people and with the, with the Roman government, okay? And the Sanhedrin is made up of three primary groups of Jewish officials, and it's the Pharisees, who we looked at a couple weeks ago, and they come up to Jesus and they challenge Jesus from their own particular lens. The Pharisees come up and they say, you know, and they, and they challenge Jesus, and they're more like radical, revolutionary, let's overthrow Rome type of people. And then last week, we saw that Jesus interacted with the Sadducees, and why are they called Sadducees? Anyone remember this? 
They're sad, you see. That's right. That's right. They're sad because they don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And so their whole understanding of life is broken and they're sad because they think that this is it. And so they challenge Jesus. Now this week, we see the scribes coming up to Jesus and they challenge Jesus. And, and, and there, it seems like they might genuinely have some questions, so they're not as like obviously contentious as the other two groups were. But either way, they're coming up, they're challenging Jesus, they're quizzing Jesus. And so what, what we'll see as we walk through, I think I forgot to say this at the beginning. Um, if you go back there to the slide, just to, for us to have some handles on where we'll go, is we'll see a command, a question, a caution, and then a contrast. So I mentioned throwing out that boomerang. Jesus will start with the command as he's interacting with these scribes and then he talks to everyone else. And then we'll see that he gives, um, or that he asks a question. Then he gives a caution. Then we'll see a stark contrast and then that will bring us back. Okay, so so you have some handles as we go. And so now we know who these scribes are and which is important as we relate with them. We know who these scribes are and where they're going. So they come up and they're talking to Jesus and Jesus then says to them, Right? Someone asked him, which commandment is the most important? And Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so, these are the great commandments. Well, where Jesus goes with this, is Jesus is taking them through some of the most important like Jewish belief of their day, the Shema, right? Some of you have heard us. We sometimes when we are sent out, we read the Shema. It's from Deuteronomy chapter six, and the Shema was was um was like a charge given to the people of God, given to Israel. And the word Shema means listen up. It's like here, listen up, kind of lean forward, get your ears cleaned out, listen up, and then it goes on and it says exactly that: love the Lord your God with all your all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, there's this, this charge. And it was a really important shaping thing for the people of God. And so, again, we see those dots connected. Who is God? What is He doing? Was always supposed to inform and lead and direct the people of God. So, Jewish people would read this prayer or recite this prayer at least once a day. And um, even to this day, Jewish people have this they have something, um, if you've ever been to Israel, you've ever known some Orthodox Jewish people, they have something at their doorpost. And every door you go to in Israel, and the Jewish um, populated areas have this nailed up on their doorpost. And it's this exactly, it's Deuteronomy 6, because it says, put this on your doorpost as a sign for you. And, and then when Jewish people pray and they have something on their forehead and on their arms, it's going back to this, okay? So it's really important. Um, Maybe a more modern day expression. I actually have a friend who has this Shema tattooed on his chest, which I think is pretty cool. Um, but he actually has it flipped backward. So if you look at it, you're like, what is that? But it's turned around backwards. So when he looks at himself in the mirror with his shirt off, which I guess he does a lot, um, he sees the Shema kind of coming back at him, right? So he remembers this. You know, we do all kinds of crazy things. But the Shema. Well, then. Jesus jumps into another really, really familiar um, passage. He goes to Leviticus chapter 19. And Leviticus chapter 19 is another place where God brings his people through a series of commands. And he essentially says, 
Because I'm God, because I'm great, because I'm your God, I'm not just any other God, I'm set apart, I'm the true God, and you are my people, do these things. And so Leviticus 19 is broken up and it says some things. It says, first of all, love God above everything else. And then it goes next into some parts that say, love your neighbor as yourself. And it gives some really practical implications. It says like, when you, if you're a farmer and you're collecting your food, don't pick up every last little bit, but whatever falls by the wayside, leave it there. So the people who don't have as much money can go and get that food and be fed and can survive. And so God sets up a whole communal structure based on who he is and how his people are to live in light of that. Hear me, that's always been the mission of God. From the very beginning, from Genesis, there's always a posture of who is God and what is he doing. And yet this scribe comes up and is like, Jesus, what's the one thing I got to do? I know I can't keep it all. I know I can't keep the whole law. I can't do everything. I can't really live as your people Right? Like, I'm sinful, right? Nobody's perfect. Just like you and I tend to do. Kind of kind of come up with some things like, hey, I can't do it all. So what's the one thing? What's the shortcut? How do I honor God with the most important thing? And then Jesus answers him and says, love God. That's the greatest commandment. But then I love this. Like Jesus does. He takes it a step further. And Jesus says, and the second is like it. And you've got to picture that the guy's like, no, no, no. I just asked for one. And Jesus is like, well... I don't care. Let me give you another one. And I think, again, he gives that because he's connecting the dots, that our horizontal relationships, how we relate with one another, cannot be separated from our vertical relationship with God. Right? There cannot be this sacred-secular divide that we looked at last week, that we are so naturally um, uh, embrace ourselves, and we're like, yeah, that's the religious stuff, that's the spiritual stuff, that's the Sunday stuff, but this is business practice. Right, but this is this is how I relate with no, this is the football game, right? This is how I act out on the field. This is how I act with my classmates, right? Like you can't just sit back and be passive, right? Like you gotta it's a dog eat dog world, right? We tend to create these things in every way, and, and God is breaking that down and saying, No, 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 I'm your God and you're my people, and you will you will reflect that in every way. And so Jesus gives the command and he tells him, Love God first. And love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus does say, you're close. You're close, right? He tells this guy because the guy goes on and responds to him and kind of asks a clarifying question. And Jesus says to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God in verse 34. You're not far. And he might mean, look, you keep asking questions. If you're confused, lean in, ask more questions. Or perhaps he also means because Jesus did say when he showed up on the scene, he said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Meaning where Jesus is, there his kingdom is. His kingdom is breaking in. So perhaps Jesus also means, you're near me. Like we're talking, you're not far from the kingdom of heaven. Where I am, the kingdom of heaven is breaking in. So either way, Jesus is clearly saying, move a little closer. Come toward me. I am bringing my kingdom. It's not here yet fully, but I'm bringing it. Come to me. And so Jesus gives this command. And then Jesus goes on and brings a, a question, right? He, he, he poses a question, picking up in verse 35. As Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. This is probably pretty confusing to a lot of us. Like, what is, Why does Jesus all of a sudden start talking about David and the son of David and the Lord of David? Well, here's this. Again, we need to understand who he's talking to. Okay, the scribes, probably like many of us, thought of Jesus as this, like, this hero that would come in and rise up from amongst the people and would deliver the people so that he could be an example for us to look to. Right? That's how a lot of us today think of Jesus. He was a great man. He was a great example. Perhaps he was a prophet. God? He's God. Wait, what? Whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't know about Jesus being God. Right? If, we don't even say that, but a lot of us, that's how we approach this whole thing. Well, for their day, as we've seen throughout, whether it's the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the scribes, they were waiting, right? They were waiting for the Messiah to come, the Christ, the one sent from God to bring in his kingdom and make things right once and for all. And they're asking constantly, is this it? Is this the one? And a bunch of false messiahs have come, right? We've seen that as we've walked through this before. When Jesus made his triumphal entry, they're like, maybe this is the one. And there have been like seven or eight other triumphal entries before. And they're like, here comes the Messiah. Wait, he's on a donkey and he's not wielding a sword. Maybe not. Similar to probably how some of us feel. David is here. Is this the year? Rose Bowl. This is it. Oh, maybe not. Hang in there, though, right? Maybe. It'll come. It'll come, right? We're keep up hope, right? We keep, we keep that posture. Well, that's the same kind of thing. They're just like, is this it? Is this the one? And they're looking. They're trying to pick out some different things. And, and, and then Jesus says, look, you're looking at one another. Is that the Christ? Is that the Christ? And they were so um, caught up in that that they weren't expecting God himself to be their deliverer. They thought it would be someone that was just like them. Right? They were expecting like a modern day hero. Like if you've ever, ever read like the great Greek you know, um, work you know, from Homer, they were looking for an Odysseus type of character. Like one that would stand above the rest but would still be you know, a human. Would still be imperfect but would, would be better than everyone else. Or if some of you are kind of like, I don't get that. Maybe from our great works in today, Katniss Everdeen. Right? They were looking for a Katniss or a Luke Skywalker. Right? Like someone that would be, like, would kind of relate to the, the people and would be one of us, but would be our hero. But not understanding that a hero that looks and acts like one of us and that is a broken person like one of us, that we don't just need an example. We need a Savior. We need a Lord who would choose to come and be one of us, who would choose to humble himself and take on human flesh but would be perfect. And so that's what he's talking about. He says, you're just expecting the son of David. This is from the Davidic covenant and the promise that one would come through the line of David who would rescue the people of God, who would be the true king. But he's saying, no, no, no. Even David himself in Psalm 110, when he, when he talks about this, this king, he calls him Lord. So how can it be his son? He, he has to be the Lord. And then he goes on, and I won't get into it too much, but in Psalm 110, if you want to take a note or you want to go there sometime, it's a great place where it shows, no, 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 this is the king, the true king, not just another king, but the true and perfect king that the world has never known, but the world was created to live under. 
And not only the perfect king, but, but that psalmist goes on and says it, it will be the priest. The priest is the mediator between the people and God. So that the king, the Lord, would also be the one through whom we would be able to relate with God. Alright, so that's what, 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 what Jesus is saying. He's, he's kind of blowing up their categories. He's asking them a question and he's showing them. Right, it's not just going to be one amongst you. No, the perfect king, the perfect priest, the, the everything. We have all these categories. Yeah, we have a kingly category and a priestly category and this kind of category. No, and Jesus says, I'm it. I'm your hope in every way. I'm your king. I'm your mediator. Look to me. And he asks them this question. And then he goes on and he gives a caution. And this next part, we might think like, what? He is jumping from here to there. Why does he go from this command to asking this question, and then he goes into a caution, and then he goes into this weird story where he talks about a poor woman. What's going on here? It all connects, and Jesus is continuing to pull back some layers and to reveal himself, so he gives a caution. If you'll pick up with me in verse 38. And in his teaching, he said, Beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive greater condemnation. Jesus is giving a caution, a warning to these people and to you and me. He's saying, look, in your way of doing things, in your world order, the way you've set it up, the way you relate with one another, you see right and privilege and power and wealth as something to, to boost you up and to make you better. And in so doing, you abuse other people in order to keep your position established. He says, don't be like them. Don't be like that in your business practices, in your, in your relationships with others, with your neighbors, and how you treat others on the street, and how you relate with your neighbor. Do you do it in such a way that just boosts you up and elevates you? Hear me, I think we all need to hear this. If you are a politician, a professor, a pastor, amen? Wherever it is, if you're, you're a parent, you're, you're a husband or a wife, you're, you're an employer, you're, wherever it is, our, our natural posture is going to say, I've got this position and I need to treat others to keep my position in such a way and to push them down. And in so doing, we're not loving God. We're not loving our neighbor. And we're revealing our true heart and our true beliefs and our true convictions. And Jesus gives a great caution and says, don't be like those people. Don't, don't give eloquent speeches. Right? I better take heart in that, right? Don't, don't position yourself in such a way and whatever it is that's going to boost you up and going to keep others down. So Jesus gives this caution. And this is a warning. And then he goes on, and, and it seems like, why does he go all of a sudden and start talking about this widow? And it seems kind of weird, but so Jesus gives this caution, and then he goes right into this next, this next part. It says, and then he sat down opposite the treasury, and he watched the people putting money into the offering box. Talk about pressure. All right, I, just to be clear, I've never done that, and we'll never do that. I don't even do that at all, right? So some of us are like, what is, what's going on here? Why is Jesus like scoping out who puts what in the offering box? And how does this whole thing go? Well, what he's doing is he's watching because as he just said, 
The way the offering was given in their day was such that the scribes and the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the religious elite, they set it up in such a way that showed what they were giving, right? It would be like someone's passing an offering plate or we have our giving boxes here and someone's like, um, can you pass a bigger plate? I, I need, I have more to give. And that, like the way they did it was to like promote themselves. And so Jesus is, so it was on display anyway. Okay, and so Jesus is there and he's watching and he's observing this whole spectacle. And these wealthy people are coming and they're giving their gifts in such a way, out of their abundance, that does exactly what Jesus just warned against. They're parading themselves and they're setting themselves apart from everybody else. And Jesus doesn't come down on that necessarily, on giving and generously and all these things, but it's the posture, it's the heart behind it all that he's calling out. And then he shows the contrast. And it says in verse 42, A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make up a penny. So this was like a fraction of a day's wage. Okay, so this poor widow, this poor woman who the audience reading this would understand, this is like, again, one of the most downtrodden, ostracized in in society. This is someone who had very little. And she came and she gave everything, perhaps all that she had to sustain herself, to buy some bread with. And Jesus called his disciples, that's his followers to him, and he said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Jesus is, is, is creating a contrast. He's revealing what's going on here. He's saying, look, these, these religious authorities who I've just warned you against, these people that have it all, that are giving out of their abundance, out of their plenty, these people who live in such a way to boost themselves up, they're giving a ton more than her, all right? They're not just giving a fraction of a day's wage. They're giving a lot more financially. But where it's coming from, out of their heart, out of their percentage of their overall wealth, is really, really broken, In fact, they're not really even giving in such a way to be generous or to contribute to the ways of God and the things that God's doing. They're giving in such a way to really boost themselves. He says, but this woman, she trusts God. She knows that God's promises that he's just talked about in Deuteronomy, in Leviticus 19, that when, when, when Leviticus 19 says, says, listen, when you pick all of your agriculture, which was the whole way of life in that day, when you do that, leave some that's left for everyone else. This, this widow is taking God at his word. He's saying, that's right, God. In your economy, in your societal structure, you provide for even the most broken. That you call the wealthy and those who have much to be aware of others who are equally image bearers of God and God's people. So you will provide, God. So I'm going to give out of my poverty because I trust that you always provide. And that's where this woman is coming from. And so Jesus draws a stark contrast. And so as I said, we're through that boomerang out, right? We started, love God and love your neighbor. And it throws out, we have a command, a question. And we have a caution. And now we have a contrast. And as I don't know boomerangs, right? I'm not Australian. I don't know how they work exactly. I've actually never really been able to make it work. But when I've seen other people make it work, you throw it out, 
And right before it starts coming back, it spins around there for a second, right? And then it makes its way back. Well, similarly, we need to look for a second as that boomerang is floating, okay? That pendulum is swinging, right? Just do good. Love God, love your neighbor. Take that. But then out here, we're out here, and we're like, there's this contrast going on. And once again, we're like, don't be like the scribes, but be like the widow. But hanging there for us to not miss is the boomerang. It's the clear picture of Jesus that's been building throughout here. The contrast that's been building between Jesus and everyone else and anything else. So like this widow, Jesus will give everything that he has. But unlike this widow, he has everything. He's not just the son of David. He's not just, he's not just another king. He's the king. He's the king of the world. He is the creator. As we read in the Nicene Creed, he's almighty God. The one through whom and for whom all things are made. He's the author of the entire story. And yet, unlike these scribes, he doesn't just throw a little bone. He doesn't just give enough to kind of make himself look good, but not really cost himself anything. He gives everything for the good of his neighbor. He gives everything for you and me and for our entire world to be restored to the way he made it to be. Not just meeting in Odysseus or a Katniss or a Luke Skywalker to rise up among us. No, the glorious king has put on human flesh and entered in and given abundantly. He's given fully. He's given everything. He doesn't just give two copper coins. He gives even his life to make things right. To restore how God created us. Where God would be our God. And we would be his people. And our vertical relationship and our horizontal relationships would be fully united under his kingship and his priestly nature of serving as a way that we could be restored to almighty God and to one another in all of life. So when we say all of life is all for Jesus, it always comes with the pretense that all of life only comes through Jesus. Amen? And so now as the boomerang comes back, we're, we're more appropriately positioned to understand. Love God and love your neighbor is not just try harder, do better. Because again, our natural disposition is going to be outdo our neighbor. And we're going to get all confused in this and how we actually do this. And so now, understanding what Jesus has done for us, that Jesus laid down his life, that Jesus, the great king, gave himself to restore life. Now we understand what it looks like to love him and to love our neighbor. And so a couple really clear questions, guys, that we need to ask ourselves is this. Do we reflect the kingdom of God? Okay, because Jesus' assumption, hear me, look at me. Jesus' assumption when he ascended and left his people, the church, to be the good news to the world, he assumed that by loving God and by loving our neighbor, the kingdom, his kingdom, would be made visible and would be transforming the broken world that we're in. When Jesus says, behold, I'm making all things new, he expects that his people, his followers, the one he called around to point out what he's doing with the widow, to point out what it means to give everything, he expected that those who were called his followers 
would actually bring his kingdom? And the hard question that we need to ask ourselves individually and communally is, is that really happening? Like, honestly, if the world were to look at us right now, would the world say, yeah, that's good news? If the world were to look at the church and how we relate with one another and how we relate with God and how we look at ourselves and how we relate with the world around us, would the world say, yeah, that's, that's good. That's the way it's supposed to be. Because Jesus' intention is that that is what would happen. But how? How would this happen? Right? We're still left in this place. I know it. I know you're feeling that tension. You're feeling that guilt, perhaps. Well, Jesus says there is now no guilt, no condemnation when you come to him. So how, how do we deal with what we're feeling right now? How do you deal with, well, I don't know. You're right. I don't love my neighbor as I love myself. What does that look like? Well, Jesus said the whole law and the whole prophets are summed up in love God and love your neighbor. And what we're meant to understand where we need to go is a promise that God made in the Old Testament. That when the Messiah would come, that when things are made new through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, something would happen. That we wouldn't just try to try harder and look to Jesus as our example, but something would happen. And so this prophecy from Jeremiah 31, look at it with me. In verse 33, there's this promise to God's people that this is how society, this is how life will be lived. He will write his law on our hearts. The Spirit, for the Spirit, the helper that Jesus sends, he promised this. And here's what it says. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. That God, being God, the promise he will make with his people is this. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The day will come when we won't just look at the law. We won't just look at love God and love your neighbor. We won't come and hear a sermon and our first glimpse will be try harder, do better. I'm floundering, God. I'm trying, I'm trying. No, but that but the, even Jesus himself said, it's actually good for you that I go away. Because when I go, I will send a helper. God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, when you put your faith in Jesus, The Holy Spirit comes and sets up shop in your heart. That's something in our kind of tribe, it's a little uncomfortable, it sounds a little mystical, right? We don't want to talk about that. And we are doing ourselves an incredible injustice by avoiding talking about the Holy Spirit because that leaves us in a place of thinking, okay, Jesus, I get the gospel, I get that Jesus did it for me, I can't do it, but how then? There's still these commands, there's still this expectation of Jesus that I will actually love my neighbor, But I'm trying, how do I do that? Well, again, Jesus' expectation is predicated on the promise that His Spirit will now enable us to do that which we cannot do on our own. So that through faith in Jesus, He sends God the Holy Spirit, who now writes the law on our hearts. Are we perfect? No. But now the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sins. I don't have time to get into all this. James talks about this. It says, it, says, it says, when you're convicted, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. 
The prayers of a righteous man avails much, brings about many good things. It means that as God the Holy Spirit, with the law now written on our hearts, exposes our need for Jesus and reminds us of the good news that Jesus has already done what we can't do, and then compels us and empowers us to do the things that we cannot do. All right, there's a a passage that I've, I've memorized that has shaped me having a speech impediment where, 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 where Paul says, when I came to you, I did not come to you with much, much power or wisdom or strength, for I considered, um, I came to you in my weakness and in fear and in trembling, proclaiming to you only the testimony of God. And I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, so that your faith would not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The power of God only comes through the ministry and the work of God the Holy Spirit who has been sent to to, to flow through and empower the church corporately and individually. So now, church, we're faced with that uncomfortable question. Is that who we are? Is that how we live? Do we love God and love our neighbor? And our response We need to cry out. We need to confess. God, I've tried on my own power. I need your Holy Spirit. And then now, lastly, we're faced with this question. Who is my neighbor? Right? Well, who who am I supposed to love? Who's my neighbor? I, I don't know the exact application for everyone in this room. I don't. But I know there is a weighty application for every single one of us. Jesus really expected his kingdom to come. We want to justify this. We want to be like, yeah, but, yeah, no. Jesus really expected that through the power of the Holy Spirit, as we respond to what Jesus has done on the cross, and Jesus' promise of making all things new, that he really will enable us to love God with our whole lives and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Not instead of ourselves, right? Sometimes we go to that extreme. We do these things. We think, oh, I need to... No, Jesus already died for his church, so we don't have to. But he does call us to love our neighbor as ourselves. To think in the same way I want to be treated, I want to treat others. So now, I just want you to think on your own, practically. Who's your neighbor? Okay, because my guess is some of us in here, if I went to one extreme, some of us would be like, yeah, I know all my neighbors. I know, you know, we hang out together, we barbecue together, we party together, they all look like me, we all have the same kind of job, we all have the same tax bracket, we're all in the same place, we all have the same hobbies, we all look alike, smell alike. I know my neighbors. I know them. I share the gospel with them. It's easy. And, And I would say, amen and amen. Do that. Go and do that. That is good. But if we just leave it there, and we don't understand our other neighbor, our international neighbor, For some of us, our next door neighbor, the neighbor that we drive by on the street, the neighbor that perhaps works for us or that we work alongside, the neighbor that maybe doesn't look or smell or talk or spend like us. Do we love that neighbor as we love ourselves? So for some of us, we say, yeah, I do that. I do that. I go and I partner with the gospel rescue mission. I feed homeless people. I keep keep granola bars in my car. And when someone's asking, I roll down my window and I hand them one. And, whatever, and they're like, thanks, I didn't ask for that. Uh, whatever, right? We're like, yeah, I love my neighbor. I do that. I love the downtrodden and the oppressed, and I do that. But I don't know any of my neighbor's name. When I go home, I 
Right? We do the sacred-secular divide in every way. Because some of us who do that kind of stuff, we come home and we hang up our hat and we're like, I did it. I don't need to share the gospel with my next-door neighbor. I don't need to go out and have a barbecue and just say, how was your day? Right? I already do these other things. And wherever it is, right, that pendulum is just swinging. And Jesus nails it to the wall and says, no, love me and love all your neighbors with all your life in response to all that I have given for you. So what's the application for you? My guess is none of us is nailing it perfectly. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And as a church, I'm going to, I'm going to share a passage with you that, that convicts me. That, that, that Jesus has given us a charge of who our neighbor is and how we function. In James chapter 1, we see this. If anyone thinks he is religious, in this, in this case, religious is a good thing. Often it's used as a negative, pejorative sense. But this means, if anyone thinks he's truly a follower of God, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. If you're fooling yourselves, if you have a bunch of yeah buts, if you justify how you live, then he's saying you need to be, you need to be um, put on caution. Your religion is worthless. But he says religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their afflictions and to keep oneself, oneself unstained from the world. To be unstained from the world does not mean that we just go and you know, set up walls and create holy huddles and do all this stuff that keeps us apart from all the shenanigans out there right in the world, from all the bad things. No, to be unstained from the world means that your heart is defined by the kingdom of heaven that Jesus has brought in and said, if you are my follower through the power of God the Holy Spirit, you will bring this forth. It means that you love God and you love your neighbor as yourself in every way. That's what he means to be unstained by the world. Well, what does that look like? The charge here is we're a young, predominantly white, predominantly affluent, growing in our diversity church, positioned here in downtown Tucson in an unreconciled, diverse community that is changing as we speak. We need to say, what does it look like to love our neighbor? Is it only that we do stuff with, you know, craft coffee and jazz music and whatever else it is? Or do we ask the hard questions of who are all my neighbors? Who are our neighbors here in Tucson? What does it look like? I'm, I didn't plan on this, but before I close, which I know I said I'd do like half an hour ago. Um, I was handed this just this morning. Right? We meet in a school where this is the reality. These are our neighbors. It's actually in English and in Spanish, but I'm going to go for, for the English because um, I won't be able to do the Spanish. But here's what it says. A court-appointed special master has made the decision to recommend that Safford K-8 be stripped from its Magnus status. This means that $897,000 of school funding will be cut if the court approves this proposal. And it goes on, this last line, it says this. It says, also, let them know, let it be known that you want to be represented as a new plaintiff in the desegregation case. This is a case that has been going on for decades here in Tucson, and I venture to guess most of us don't even know what's happening. 
And I'm not going to get into, well, we've got to vote this way, we've got to do this right. This is not a political right. Jesus won't fit into our political categories. But in his charge to love our neighbor as ourselves, we need to be aware of what's going on. We need to be aware that this morning I met with a teacher here from Safford who essentially said, will the church come alongside us as a school and teach us what it looks like to be a part of the community? And I said, no, no, no. Will you teach us? But for whatever reason, God has given us a relationship. He's positioned us in such a way here in downtown Tucson to be a part of some massive conversations. The reality that the vast majority of the kids who come to this school where we meet come from single parent homes. Come from parents who cannot come to parent-teacher conferences because they don't have the funds for it. We joke about the way the bathrooms look and the men's bathroom doesn't have doors on it and there's toilet paper on a chain. There's a reason for that. So we're, we're in a messy place. The messy place we're in of loving God and loving our neighbor. I don't know exactly what it looks like. The messy answer to the question we all face of what's the application? What's the, what's the action point for me here? I don't know exactly what it is for you. I don't even know exactly what it is for me yet. But I know that we look to Jesus. We look that he did what we cannot do. We look that he loved his neighbor, though we were his enemies. We look that he didn't just give out of his abundance. Out of, he didn't just give a little bit. He gave everything. And in light of that truth, in light of the gospel, we're now called to be the good news to the world around us. As we embrace and stand firm on the good news of Jesus, we get to be the good news. We get to be bringing the kingdom of God to the world around us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you, um, Lord, we come humbly. We come perhaps more confused than when we came but I think that's a good thing, Lord, because our eyes can go nowhere else but to you. Lord, the socioeconomic, the, the ethnic, the political, the financial, the development questions of our city, of our world, of our country are very complex, are not easily dismissed from the far right or the far left. There's no easy answer. And God, we don't want to be trite and just be like, who cares? I'm a Christian. It's all going to go away anyway. Lord, no, you've called us to enter into the mess. You've called us to, to ask the hard question of what it looks like to love you and love our neighbor. And Lord, we don't have all the answers, but we know that you do. And we know that you care. And Lord, we know that you are in control. And Lord Jesus, most importantly, we know that you have made promises based on your proven character that you displayed on the cross and through your resurrection, you have said that you're in control, that you're bringing your kingdom, that you're making new what has been broken, that you are, you are uniting the orphan and those who cannot have children. Lord, you are, you are reconciling all things and all that that means. Lord, we do cry out, Lord, come. Lord, help us. Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth and in Tucson, as it is in heaven. We need you now to lead us as we look to Jesus and who he is and what he's done. And we pray in his name. Amen.